Welcome to the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. In this episode, we explore the importance of due diligence. Poor due diligence is not just a possible deal killer, it's also a potential CEO killer, usually of the acquiring party. Just think about a recent example of Siemens Energy's merger with the Gamesa wind turbines business, followed by a full-scale acquisition. Turns out that Gamesa's products can have also significant shortcomings, which will take years to rectify. And what to think of Hewlett-Packard's acquisition of autonomy, where HP had to write down all of the acquisition cost, lost its CEO, as the books of autonomy appeared to have overstated business value. And Autonomy's founder was extradited to the US and is now on trial. So how do you make sure that you know what you are buying before you sign? I have two guests today to help you sort through these challenges. I welcome Julian Barron and George Pilko. Julian worked with me in Shell as an M&A lawyer and now has her own business training the next generation of M&A practitioners. Welcome, Julian. Thank you, Hust. I'm delighted to join you and to reconnect with George. And you'll be all familiar with George's surname as a sponsor of this podcast. George is the founder and chairman of Pilco & Associates, a firm that advises deal leaders on operational EHS and ESG-related issues. Thanks, Ayus. Always a pleasure. Well, let's warm up by asking you, what do you like about deals, Julian? Well, I'm not sure I can think of a better way, Hus, to get under the skin of a particular business to understand how it operates to appreciate its challenges and opportunities. And you get to know, obviously, the industry that that business works in as well. And I'm always constantly finding I'm stretched on the creative side working on deals because there are always problems which arise. And dealing with an issue on one transaction, you may not deal exactly the same way with the same issue on another transaction because the deals are always different. So I enjoy that aspect. And I very much enjoy that it's a people's business. You're working with people with a whole range of expertise. You gain insights into how they look at issues and problems. And it's a terrific opportunity to look at things from different angles and through different lenses. Thanks. And how is that for you, George? Well, there's a few things that I enjoy with acquisitions. First is that acquisitions and mergers have the potential of being transformative for the buyer. Yet these deals are typically done under severe time pressures with less than complete information. So always a challenge to tackle. Also, acquisitions require sound judgment as well as seamless teamwork with professionals from various disciplines. And finally, I think all of us know that any deal involves trade-offs between price, speed, and post-closing uh, risks and liabilities. So you have a deal team that must be clear about these trade-offs and how they sometimes evolve as the deal proceeds. Well, I think we have probably a few of these trade-offs as examples today. So we're going to look at due diligence and mainly from a buyer's perspective. And in such a situation, you're competing with other buyers and the seller provides you with a limited amount of time during which you can collect all the information you need to validate what is in your models and maybe update your bids. And these days with data rooms, more often there's more information, an overload rather than a lack of it. So how to process all of that in a short period? So if I start with asking you, George, what are the signs of a well-run DD process from a buyer's perspective? Well, two signs come to mind whose first is an experienced deal leader who has clear deal objectives 
yet understands the need to adjust strategy and tactics as the deal unfolds. And that deal needs to keep the big picture in focus and doesn't get distracted by issues which aren't critical to his or her deal objectives. The second sign is uh, seamless teamwork among the extended deal team instead of, which we sometimes see, a siloed approach with limited interaction between functional specialists. All deal team members must understand the deal objectives and their role in achieving those objectives. And those points certainly resonate with me, George. I think during the course of any due diligence, it's very important to maintain a team dynamic where you've got regular and sometimes daily and rapid fire interaction between different work streams because deal issues identified by one work stream can certainly impact also on others. And it's not only about the identification of the issue, it's also about how to resolve it. So a seamless deal team, as you've mentioned, is able to pivot and can be very flexible in responding to new information. Important, I think, to recognize that due diligence continues throughout a transaction. It applies also to information beyond the data room. So it's important to stay on top of industry developments, on top of geopolitical developments. Transactions, as you know, don't take place in a vacuum. So it's always terrific to have that interdisciplinary collaboration. And it's important, I think, to also look at different sources of information, particularly on the very material issues. I think on top of that, people shouldn't underestimate the value in due diligence planning. Because if you plan ahead, then you're much more likely to ensure your team's appropriately resourced to work within the prescribed timelines and with the right expertise, focusing in particular on the material issues where there's the most downside risk. Best to have clear accountability so you avoid duplication. And materiality levels are important to set because there's an appropriate trade-off, as you've mentioned, George, then between time, cost, and value impact involved in running this process. I think that's pretty full list. And I think a good process will also always have this feedback loop back to your valuation model. So uh, you're clear about the assumptions you had, and you're verifying those assumptions with the material you can find in your due diligence. So we're looking at the process where we're helping out a buyer. Let's just start off, Julianne, what are you looking for? We just started the due diligence process. I think one of the most fundamental things to look for, Hus, is what's not there. And it's very important not to assume that the basics are all in place. So I've looked at targets which have been operating businesses for a number of years, and they've got really good relationships with their regulators, with the lessors, joint venture partners, and other stakeholders. But when you go in and interrogate the paperwork, We've found in certain instances there's no current operational license, uh, land title documents are missing, and leases have expired. Now, none of this may have been a problem for the current business because of long-standing relationships, but transactions have a habit of upsetting the apple cart. So stakeholders who may be nervous about a new player coming in can actually then get very nervous about the absence of what I mentioned before. And if those things weren't a problem for the existing business, they can suddenly become so on a change of control. Secondly, I think you have to interpret what is there. You have to look carefully at the quality of the information and ensure the material it's not skewed, it's not dealt with in isolation or misleading, particularly for the financials. 
So that's a trust but verify point. But I think the key of what you're looking for in due diligence comes back to the purpose of why you're undertaking the process in the first place. And it's to validate assumptions, as you've mentioned, Hus. It's also to inform your risk allocation or price adjustment uh, negotiation position. And it's to prepare also for implementation and integration activities. And it may be that you've looked during your due diligence and seen incidents with the existing business. That can then help inform you, okay, well, what's the culture? What's the risk management like? And perhaps you've also identified certain operational issues that you need to prioritize that you need to look at when you've acquired control as a buyer. But I think, George, that's very much front and center of your focus. Yes, and there's been a fundamental shift in buyer's focus over the last 10 years. If you go back a decade or so ago, 70% of the uh, focus was on environmental health and safety issues and 30% on operational-related issues. But that's flipped, and currently we're seeing uh, 70% of the focus of buyers on operational-related issues with 30% on uh, environmental health and safety. That's interesting. George, why has it changed that much? Well, there's been a few factors. One is that we're dealing with older assets, which often have been subject to underinvestment over time in maintenance, capex, and operating uh, expenses. Two, we've got a widespread inexperienced operating staff due to retirements without sufficient training of the next generation of operators and manufacturing leaders. And frankly, the other factor is that many times we see corporate leaders who are preoccupied with cutting budgets without an understanding of the increased risks they are inadvertently accepting. You add those factors up, there's an increased risk of catastrophic insights that buyers have become very focused on when they're uh, evaluating a, uh, an asset or a business. But you can also turn that around and say that could be an opportunity for improving a business and the new ownership. Absolutely. If you see an asset which is less than brilliantly uh, operated, you can oftentimes make adjustments post-closing to improve the profitability of the asset. Okay, well, thanks for these reflections to start with. If I summarize, it's really important when you set up your deal process and your due diligence activity that everybody in the deal team understands the deal objectives and the deal rationale and their place in it. And then look for what is not there just as much as what is there. And as we just finished with, a lot of focus needs to be on operational issues. And we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsor, Pilco. Pilco and Associates is the leading advisor to deal leaders and senior executives on operational, EHS and ESG risks and liabilities in the global chemical and energy industries. Since 1980, the firm has advised on over $600 billion of transactions involving facilities in 80 countries, including some of the highest profile deals during the past five decades. Pilco's advisors have an average of 38 years of relevant professional experience in operational and executive roles with major energy and chemical companies. For more information, Go to pilco.com. 
Welcome back to the Mergers and Acquisition podcast. And you'll remember, I have the luxury of having two guests in the podcast today, Julian Barron and the founder of the company that you just heard about in the advert, George Pilko. Now, I would not make sufficient use of both of your combined decades of deal experience if I would not discuss with you a few situations that you don't want to happen, but in practice, as part and parcel of running a deal, they do. And so here's this first situation. A buyer conducts the proper due diligence, as we discussed just before the break, but then finds a major issue that wasn't disclosed by the seller. George, I believe you have been in a situation just like that. Yes, it was interesting, uh, and this goes back a few years ago, where we were advising the bidder on a global chemical deal where the seller's uh, deal lead was based in Germany and was unaware of a major environmental issue in another area of the world. During the remote sensing that we conducted for our client, our team identified a major environmental issue with a potential impact of around $200 million. This issue was not disclosed by the seller to the bidders. After strategizing with the buyer's deal team, the decision was made to delay raising this issue with the seller until the second round of bids when there were four or five bidders remaining in the auction. When our client ultimately raised the uh, environmental issue to the uh, seller's deal lead, our client offered a reasonable indemnity, which allowed the deal to close on schedule. At that point, the uh, seller had the alternative of accepting our client's bid or going back to the remaining bidders, alerting them of the environmental issue, then having all parties resubmit bids based upon the new information. Our client's uh, strategy was successful. We closed the transaction on schedule and obtained full protection on the environmental issue. So this turned out to be an excellent example of teamwork involving various functional experts and an experienced deal leader. I think it's a very nice example, actually, George, also of an effective due diligence program providing a competitive edge for the buyer in that case. And I can imagine the seller would have felt quite compromised disclosing such a material issue late in the day to the other bidders. I mean, psychologically, those bidders would have been likely to ask, well, what other skeletons are hidden in the closet? So a salient lesson, I guess, also for sellers in conducting their own due diligence thoroughly in respect of uh, assets that they're going to divest to ensure, I guess, that they're not wrong-footed in an auction process. On the environmental side, I think it's important also to make sure you're not wrong-footed by failing to do a due diligence to understand the local regulatory environment. And a buyer needs to consider public law considerations on contamination and remediation requirements. That can be quite different country to country. In some countries, there's a polluter pays regime, which means the regulator can go after a former owner as the person responsible for contaminating the land, i.e. they remain responsible for the cleanup. But in other countries, it might be that operational responsibility dictates that the person responsible for applying the permit to operate the site are the ones to assume responsibility to remediate contamination. And then I've been caught out in the past because depending on the jurisdiction, a tenant could have liabilities on a lease site to its landlord, but in other countries, it's the landlord which picks up responsibility for the tenant's actions. So I think it's very important people understand all of this to determine if you're comfortable with the allocation of risk provisions at law or whether you actually need to shift those 
allocation of risk provisions contractually. I did smile, George, when you referenced in your example an environmental indemnity that allowed the deal to complete on schedule. That's because in my experience, it's often the environmental indemnities which hold up the signing because they're so tortuous to negotiate. You have to think in an environmental indemnity, not only about ongoing operations, but what happens if there's a closure or a change in use scenario. And then you have to distinguish between known or unknown liabilities and contamination, on-site or off-site impacts. And triggers are are something which is also very critical to define. Are you dealing with something where the indemnity only becomes operative on a legal order? It's a very high threshold. Is there perhaps a softer trigger which can create for the parties more opportunities but also more potential for dispute? And there are practical issues too in this. If the indemnifying party has conduct rights over the remediation, will it have unfettered access to the site to be able to exercise that control. And then, of course, no party wants to be subject to an indemnity obligation in perpetuity. So what limitation clauses are you going to put in place to ensure that there's brackets around the time limit that you're exposed to claims? Will you have sliding scales to transition liability and give both parties a stake in any remediation exercise? So the permutations are really very extensive. Yeah, let's keep in mind that many sellers don't prepare vendor due diligence reports. And when they do, these reports are often, as my colleague Sven Royal likes to say, triumphs of minimal disclosure and focused exclusively on environmental health and safety issues and typically don't include operational uh, related issues in these VDD reports. So let's now describe another situation. I've had one where an issue just comes up between signing and completion. This is a refinery we're selling, and the main compressor in the most important plant in that refinery had suddenly started developing a vibration, and I wasn't sure if it could last the next two years until the next scheduled maintenance. How then do you deal with that in the negotiation? But George, you've had something that's even more dramatic. Yeah, I'll share with you an example. Um, It was during a large energy acquisition where a catastrophic incident occurred between signing and closing, which shut down operations for an extended period. At that point, the buyer had multiple options, including walking away from the transaction by triggering the uh, the MAC provision. They could uh, wait for the seller to repair and restart the facility before agreeing to close the transaction or they could adjust the purchase price, close the transaction on schedule, then restart the facility under the buyer's leadership. This situation is another example of how a deal lead must seek inputs from various deal team members to evaluate options, understand the trade-offs, then make an intelligent decision on the optimal course of action. Unfortunately, major operational issues are not uncommon during energy and chemical transactions, given that facility and headquarters personnel can get distracted by the deal and lose focus on driving reliable and safe operations. These incidents are a reminder that sellers will offer transfer their high potential leaders from a facility or business before beginning the sales process, as you mentioned, uh, leaving the B team to run operations with very predictable results. Buyers should keep in mind that operational leaders will often need to be replaced 
by the buyer at or soon after closing in order to ensure facilities are run safely, reliably, and consistent with the buyer's culture. Yeah, so this uh, operational ability, uh, assessing the operational quality of an asset is really important during due diligence. So suppose that you did not get, uh, say, the catastrophic situation that you just talked about, but you did find various pointers that you say, well, actually, this is uh, less than optimal, what we found here. The due diligence reports come out and it says, well, the status of the maintenance is lacking. We're not sure about its operational standards. They have been deteriorating. So then I asked Julian, what contractual tools could I use to address this in my negotiation? Okay, so now we consider contractual allocation of risk provisions, which effectively operate to adjust value post-closing. And these normally come in the form of warranties and indemnities. And it's very good to have these contractual protections. But I think the main point I would make here is that they're not silver bullets. It's not a panacea. And the reason for that is that contractual rights need to be enforced And that can entail its own challenges, such as discharging a burden of proof. For example, the buyer will need to demonstrate it suffered damages if the seller's breached a warranty, or it may need to demonstrate all of the terms attached to an indemnity have been satisfied. And practically, the pursuit of claims can involve significant cost and management time, and it can drive management nuts. (laughs) And recoverability itself may be an issue if the seller is no longer solvent. So you always have to keep in the back of your mind whether the contractual protections you're fighting so hard to get are going to be worth more than the paper they're written on when you're seeking to enforce them. And of course, I mean, there are mechanisms that you can employ to address all of these issues, guarantee provisions and the like, but you have to anticipate those and negotiate them up front. And um, governing law and dispute resolution clauses shouldn't be overlooked either as boilerplate because if you're anticipating claims in the future, you need to know that you're comfortable with the law and forum dispute resolution because geopolitical shifts, for example, like we've seen post the Ukraine invasion, that can inhibit actually a fair award being delivered or the ability to enforce your judgment. When I'm working with the team Hus, I always remind them also of the golden rule the person who holds the goal makes the rules. So it's always better as a buyer to withhold some of the consideration pending resolution of a particular exposure than to have to claim that money back from a seller and, of course, vice versa for the other party. And the success, of course, of insisting on these provisions will depend on your negotiation leverage at the time and the competitive field. As well as the golden rule, I also just wanted to mention briefly the fudge. So quite often we're looking at contractual allocation of risk provisions, but the buyer and the seller can both become very entrenched and they won't move. So you can have a transaction where there's a stalemate late in the day over a material potentially liability and which party's willing to bear it. And there are three basic options then in that case. So either the buyer or the seller could walk away, but they're often very reluctant to do so. You may have a liability that's worth 50 million, but the deal itself could be worth 500 million and it's hard to withdraw then for the parties. Alternatively, one of the parties has to concede the point or there's an agreement reached to split the liability. But that's then often a case of who blinks first. And if the stalemate persists right down to the wire, then you're looking at a third alternative, 
In that third alternative, the allocation of risk provisions are agreed, but there are ambiguities in the provisions. For example, in an indemnity schedule, the drafting might be full of compromises. And what happens in that case that there's not, in fact, any clear-cut allocation of risk and the ambiguities that have been built in become ripe for litigation further down the track post-closure of the deal? And what the parties have done in order to get the deal over the line is really to agree to bear the risk in a sense of the potential future exposure because the litigation outcome is also unclear. No one can look into the future. So the parties have got the deal done, but they've kicked the can down the road to fight or perhaps settle the issue another day. And litigators might come in post facto a few years down the track and wonder why on earth the clauses were left open to uncertainty or potentially criticise the bad drafting. But sometimes it's done on purpose to resolve a paralysis in the negotiation. It's a fudge at the time of signing, but notwithstanding the future dispute, the buyer and the seller may still be in a better position for having done the deal. Yeah, I can follow that rationale. And uh, I think I've been guilty of a few fudges myself. And the only thing I've learned, because the way we're organized, was that we also, as a M&A team, had to look after, uh, say, post-closing rights and obligation, that the fudge would always come back to bite you yourself. And then you would be dealing with that issue later. And sometimes you say, well, yeah, we're losing a bit, but I still like the deal and I'm happy we did it. Uh, even if now in cleaning up this uh, issue around the fudge, we lose a little bit. And sometimes we're just not happy about it, but it is a realistic option. I'm fascinated that sometimes attorneys will purposely draft vague provisions relative to indemnities, because when we are asked to enforce indemnities post-closing, Sometimes we'll look at uh, provisions and scratch our head wondering what the attorneys were thinking. Sounds like it's at least sometimes an overt strategy to get the deal done. Not always by design, but by desperation, I would say, because you just cannot land it. I think the ambiguity comes through compromise, and the more compromise there is, the more uncertainty, I think, that are built into the provisions. So to that extent, yes, overt, but not necessarily what you'd plan to do. You, of course, want to get the concession from the other party and you just can't extract it. So, George, can I ask you, suppose we're now at the start of an acquisition process, what types of advice would you have for a potential buyer? Well, it's a few things that the buyers can do at the front end of an acquisition to improve the probability of a successful deal. One is to employ remote sensing. It's a process that our team developed uh, 25 years ago to obtain insights on a target business without their knowledge. And so this involves extensive industry networks as well as publicly available information. It can be invaluable in screening potential targets as well as shaping the uh, preliminary discussions with the target. Another key for success is making sure that the deal team is focused on the critical few. And any deal will have a maximum of three, maybe four major issues, which must be effectively managed to ensure that transaction successfully delivers the deal objectives. And the focus of a, an effective deal leader is to identify these major issues as early in the deal as possible, then assure that these issues are effectively managed. The third key for success 
is uh, employing Stephen Covey's begin with the end in mind and thinking through at the very beginning of a transaction how the transition planning and post-closing integration will be handled, assuming that you're the successful bidder. Many deals fail to deliver the anticipated financial results due to a failure to effectively transition responsibilities from the deal team to the leaders who will be responsible for running the business after closing. Ideally, the individual or individuals who will be responsible for an acquired business post-closing will be involved at least tangentially throughout the acquisition process and appoint a single individual to be responsible for leading the transition planning as well as post-closing integration. Let's keep in mind that the acquired businesses and facilities need clear direction and guidance on expectations after closing. Otherwise, confusion and organizational drift will result in disappointing financial, operational, and HSE performance. On the post-closing matters, I think I would also emphasize that if you fought very hard on your allocation of risk that we just discussed, make sure you do have a process in place to monitor and track your post-closing rights and obligations. Because having fought for those protections, it would be a terrible shame if you squandered them then by missing time limits and other clauses you have to comply with to make a successful claim. Absolutely. And in some cases, those indemnity provisions are put in somebody's desk and only taken out right before the indemnity expires, which is counterproductive. So what I've been seeing and enjoying in this conversation is actually how two folks with completely different perspective, one on an uh, EHS and ESG and the other with a legal uh, background, feed on each other to make your deal better. And that's a point I want to talk about a little bit more. Let's call it interdisciplinary collaboration. And when I started as a deal lead, uh, I did realize there are multiple uh, aspects to a deal. So I had these lines going from me to each of the experts to make sure that everything was covered. And it became a bit of a spider's web, like uh, the deal lead in the middle and getting all these informations uh, going to and from. And it took me a while to realize that even though as a deal lead, I would be well informed, I was lacking the opportunity to let the folks communicate between themselves within the team, because that creates so much more options and possibilities. As soon as you manage that, then you can really get a team to provide you uh, the value of the expertise and translate that into commercial options, contractual sound solutions and a real quality deal. So I wanted to just check in with both of you how you experience that aspect of teamwork in a deal. Julia, maybe start with you. Yeah, your comments remind me, Hus, of a project I worked on quite early in my career. And um, it was structured in the way that you first mentioned, the deal lead was the spider in the web or the spoke in the wheel and the only one who occupied that position. And we were looking on that project at an acquisition of a facility in Southeast Asia. And I told the deal lead early on that there were going to be changes in the tariff regime in a couple of years' time. And that was regulated at the time by the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, by ASEAN. And it would affect the import of raw materials to that facility. And it would also affect the export of product from that facility to the neighboring countries. Now, I assumed that this would be known by the finance team or communicated to them by the deal lead because I communicated it early on to the deal lead. 
and therefore factored into the valuation model. Well, it wasn't known by the finance team. And because the deal lead was so overstretched as that only spoke in the wheel, it wasn't communicated or picked up until quite late in the day on that acquisition. And in that case, the tariff changes actually undermined the business case. So we stopped the deal, but not before we'd expended quite a bit of resources. So I learned two things from that experience. Firstly, since then, I have always asked to see a valuation model. I'm useless at interrogating the numbers, but I do want to interrogate the assumptions and the sensitivity cases that underpin the model. And secondly, I learned it's just too much for any one individual, no matter how talented, to be responsible for connecting all of the dots on a transaction because almost everything on a transaction is interconnected and that's why the interdisciplinary collaboration is absolutely key. You need it to address what you know that you don't know, but a really dynamic team which works seamlessly together across respective expertise areas is also in a much better position to catch those matters that they don't know that they don't know. Uh, George, your views on this? I couldn't agree more. And Hus, I like your model of a spider and web and the deal leads that we've worked with who have used that model tend to produce much more effective results. Well, it was a very good demonstration, I think, of teamwork in this session. I'll try to summarize a few of the points. First of all, due diligence findings can give you commercial leverage. So it's not just a tick in the box exercise. If you plan well and execute creatively, it can actually benefit the outcome of your deal. Watch out for operational issues that's ongoing and increasing and also ensure your appropriate contractual protection. And uh, we spoke with Julian about uh, the golden rule as well as the fudge. And these two things will, uh, will stay with me for a while. And we ended on the importance of teamwork and uh, interdisciplinary collaboration. So one thing to do, of course, is to thank your team members. Julian, it's been uh, great to have you, as well as uh, you, George, as uh, both the sponsor of our podcast, but as a large contributor today. Well, thank you very much, Hughes. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And with that, we close this episode of the Mergers and Acquisitions podcast. Uh, if you want more information, uh, you can visit the website of our sponsor, pilco.com. Stay tuned. There's one more episode to come in this season. Thank you. Thank you.